For once, I'm not thinking about my body in perpetual chaos. I'm still thinking about the other Adam Sandler. This is Right Here, Right Now, a podcast brought to you by Vocal, an online platform for creators of all kinds and levels of experience. It's a place to post, to read, to be inspired. I'm your host, Erica Wagner. This season, we'll be diving into a sequence of fictional worlds. Each of the stories you'll hear is a winner of the Vocal Plus Fiction Awards, all to be published next year in partnership with Unbound, the crowdfunded publisher. Out of more than 13,000 submissions, these terrific 25 were chosen. We know you'll love them as much as we do. Now, sit back and listen in. Maybe one of these stories will inspire one of your own. Dry, overly fluorescent, nondescript chairs that are always somehow outdated. These are the hallmarks of a medical waiting room. That's the vista Erin Shea invites us to explore in this piece, the waiting room itself, and where the mind wanders while it's there. This is Waiting Room by Erin Shea. Waiting Room Sitting in yet another waiting room, I learned that Adam Sandler is the director and producer of The Price is Right. Not that Adam Sandler silly. Not the big daddy, ultra-rich, but casually-dressed Adam Sandler we all know and love. No, this was simply another Adam Sandler, one who's probably really good at his job and hates how his name alone will always place him as runner-up. A less than. Now that I think about it, It's a bit odd this man never changed his name just out of sheer convenience. I can already see the Starbucks baristas rolling their eyes. Though, he may just have a handful of favorite aliases providing a different name to each fast food worker. Bill, Steve, Greg, Rod. Maybe he's just a jokester type. The kind of man who says things like, working hard or hardly working, to retail workers on the verge of shooting themselves. But wait, what if he gets pulled over? Adam Sandler belongs on a hall of fame of worse, but amusing, fake IDs, right next to Foggles McLovin. Screw it, I'm reading too much into this. I'm the connoisseur of overplanning, of expecting the worst. Anyways, there went the credits. The show ended with a lucky guess, a big prize runner. The waiting room is still nearly vacant and the TV is set to such a low volume, it might as well have been muted. It's eerily still, except for the prices right on the little mounted television. A show which, when played interminably, could turn into my own personal hell. The kitschy set, those yellow price tags bearing everyone's name, the models. It's almost as bad as spending hours of your life sitting in waiting rooms. You may be wondering what kind of waiting room I'm even in. Am I waiting to get my teeth cleaned? Or am I in a hospital awaiting news about a relative splayed out on an operating table? The answer is neither. I'm in a waiting room wondering why the hell I'm here at all. What I'm actually waiting for. 
Chronic illness will do that to you. Doctor's appointments aren't as black and white anymore. I'm not a little kid in animal-themed pediatrician's offices for an annual checkup, getting poked, prodded, vaccinated, and handed a lollipop for my compliance all in 15 minutes' time. No, doctor's offices are much more of a devastating arena when you're desperately waiting for an answer that you simultaneously dread. A diagnosis that isn't inherently fixable. Coping is a vicious word. I've inherited it from white coats. Inconspicuously, my whole life changed during this mindless hopping between waiting rooms. All of a sudden, I could no longer distinguish sickness from health. There was just pain and respite on a constant loop. I've tried to desensitize myself to it. That's what I'm doing right now. I listen obsessively for the sound of footsteps approaching the door, but all I hear is the receptionist's whispery chatter. Sometimes the phone rings and it startles me. I realize that I'm shaking. There's a timeless, untethered quality to this place. Borderline unreal. The Price is Right switches to daytime soap operas. I can't tell yet if this is worse. At least it signifies that time is indeed passing by. I would estimate. I've now been sitting here for about 15 minutes. Only one other patient has been taken back since I arrived. Like most waiting rooms I've been in, I find that there is this subtly amusing challenge in the air. Let me explain. I scan the room to view my remaining sparsely scattered sick compatriots and I feel the need to prove my affliction. Like I need to jump up and yell, I swear I'm sicker than you. Like I should be wearing a lanyard around my neck with a card listing each and every symptom. Invisible illness will do that to you. If your diagnosis isn't outwardly visible and you happen to be quite young, you find that everyone is quietly questioning the reality of your illness. You begin to feel like a fraud no matter how sick you feel. At long last, the door swings open and a woman in dark blue scrubs calls my name right as I'm sizing up my competition. The room smells of antiseptic, underscored by a sweetness that clings to me. I had lathered my arms with floral lotion at home. Some bath and body works concoction that's been sitting on my shelf since before I got my first period. I have an affinity to hold on to things that remind me of my unremarkable youth. The room is just another manifestation of the waiting room. It's an upgrade in terms of sterility, and it's more doctored, pun intended, to appear as some haven of knowledge. There are always large frame posters and diagrams in places like this. I've come to learn that they're not entirely for show. I've had doctors whip out diagrams or try and sketch illustrations sedately like some sort of cartoon diversion. I'm the dim-witted guard being distracted so the protagonist can make their narrow, comedic escape. Luckily, this room doesn't feel cramped, like many doctor's offices I frequented. The outer wall has one massive window looking out over the urban skyline. It reminds me of how high up I really am. I had to brave ever-winding parking garages and elevator rides to get here. Might as well settle in. Google this other Adam Sandler. Get a visual of him. The doctor knocks on the door right as I locate a picture. He's on the far left of a group photo. He's bald. His face is indistinguishable. It blends in. I'm annoyed at how ordinary he is. His name should correspond to it. 
he should change his name to something more befitting like Adam Smith. I always forget if that's the famous economist or the white dude from Pocahontas. I tend to mix them up. How are we? The doctor requires my attention. I look away from Adam Sandler 2.0 and supply his ears with my prepared script. I've developed a knack for listing off my symptoms as one would read a family scribbled grocery list. As I talk, he takes notes with a stylus. The letters look loose and free, unintelligible from my angle. I stare at his thinning hair. When he finally focuses his attention wholly on me, I wonder what he sees. It hurts me even to consider. I can feel my skin thinly scraping across my sternum when I try to sit up straight. My veins bulge out of my pale arms. I'm lightheaded. The warm, artificial air is is making it worse. I wonder if a whiff of pity unfolds before him, if his notes reflect how I grieve over this body still breathing. If he does, he doesn't seem to let on. Instead, he talks about layers, about approaches and confidence, about taking my time. I've heard this bill before. These things take time. It's not a race to the finish line. We have to take things layer by layer to try and build you back up. Are you still going to acupuncture? This process is about managing and controlling what we can. How about mental health support? Nothing the man with the thin hair says grips me to reality. For once, I'm not thinking about my body in perpetual chaos. I'm still thinking about the other Adam Sandler. I don't realize it at first but he begins to pick up on how I'm just letting him rattle on, that I will not, or rather cannot, grab onto anything anymore. You're running on empty. The man, now more aware of me than I am myself, changes gears before his parting instructions. For the first time, I am able to listen to the human, not the doctor before me. It stops me in my tracks. I'm proud of you for not giving up on your body, he says. I can't recall what I replied to that, if I replied at all. That was the kind of remark that I absorb with a sigh and sit with for years. He finally leaves and I feel like crying, but no, that's what dim parking garages are for. I just have to make my descent. Back in my car, I sit idle for far too long A downpour came on, and the parking garage had taken on a muggy and damp, but safe feeling. There's a Selena Gomez song playing on the radio. I turn up the value a smidge. I favor Selena Gomez over other pop stars with the Disney Channel history because she too has lupus. When I was seven, I had a poster of her hanging in my room that I'd ripped out of a Tiger Beat magazine. Who knew we'd both grow up to lose our grip strength? I've already forgotten about the other Adam Sandler. Now I'm thinking about my different childhood bedrooms. My borderline forgotten youth, my fervent adolescence, my plummet into young adulthood. I have this habit of fractioning off my memories into categories. Said categories used to be before and after I lost my virginity or before and after I got my driver's license. Now it's just before and after I got sick. So when the doctor talks about peeling back those metaphorical layers, my mind reverts back to past selves, half-forgotten bliss and youthful ignorance. 
a part of me doesn't want it back at all. I laugh at that, my voice briefly harmonizing with the hum of my car engine. My old therapist would have milked that out of me if I hadn't discontinued our sessions. She preached a lot about throwing off the past and moving forward, shedding our fears and worries. That said, if the layers do peel back, I hope there will be someone left. I hope some core part of me has gone untouched, trapped for years. Someone still holding twinges of childhood security. Someone not waiting for the end. That was Erin Shea's waiting room. Shea does an excellent job bouncing between external and internal thoughts. It feels seamless to transition from a car in the parking garage to our protagonist's childhood bedroom and back. Next time, we'll hear a story that travels outward rather than inward, a story about the open road and the decisions we make while we're there. That will be 20 miles south of Macon by Melissa Wozniak. To read an interview with this creator or any of the others from this season, head to vocal.media. There, you'll also find a wealth of other work to entice you. Perhaps you'll submit a story of your own. Whoever you are, whatever your story, Vocal belongs to you. If you like the show, come be a part of where it all got started. Join me and the rest of our creators on Vocal. We hope you'll join our community where you can post, read, and comment. Pre-order your copy of the anthology at vocal.media or at unbound.com. You might also want to check out Unbound's brilliant podcast, Backlisted. If you haven't had the chance, take a listen to season one of Right Here, Right Now. We hear eight essays from eight authors, then get the chance to hear interviews with the authors themselves. And of course, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Right Here, Right Now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Erica Wagner. Thanks for listening. Right Here, Right Now is produced by Vocal in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Jacob Fromer, Andrew Hurwitz, and Maya bernstein Shallot and the team at Pod People. Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Ashton Carter, Rebecca Chasson, and Carter Wogan. <laughs>